0: Before I, I uh, lead us in our congregational prayer, uh, I really want this to be a congregational prayer, not just me sharing um, a prayer that's important to me. Uh, and so this prayer uh, centers on um, uh, God's opening our eyes to the true spiritual realities that are surrounding our lives. And so. Uh, as I lead us in this prayer, I will pause after every petition. And silently, uh, I would like you to pause and repeat that in, in your own way uh, as I pray. So I'll, I'll give some time after each petition so this, you could participate in this prayer. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Jesus. Thank you, Father, for bringing us into union with you, your Son, and the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for raising us up with you in the heavenly realms. Although hard to grasp, open our eyes uh, to what you're doing in us and through us. Help us return daily to see that invisible layer of reality that exists with us in parallel with our daily physical circumstances. We give you, Lord, our different challenges, our trials, our sufferings that we may not fully understand. Help us see what you see, Lord, in the middle of the storms. Please, Lord, produce... Your fruit in us for your purposes. Be light to the world through us, and may your joy be our joy as we carry on here on earth and in our neighborhoods. May you help us daily to rest with you in your heavenly presence unified with the Trinity and may we be people led by your spirit as the foundation for our lives. Lord we pray for Mark this morning um, as he brings your word to us speak through, through him lead us to you. The um, scripture reading that uh, Mark has chosen for us uh, is out of 1 John 5, 13 through 15 uh, in the NIV. And uh, let me read this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have asked or we have what we asked of him. And so before Mark comes up here, I just want to share um, a little bit of uh, Mark and I's time at Los Altos High School. (laughs) <laughs> we we uh, both went to Los Altos High the night, and, um, and so uh, I was a freshman, and I, th- I think I, we got our math right. I think he's either senior, maybe junior, senior. Um, he was leading the football team with his quarterbacking skills to uh, way more victories than losses, I believe, eight and one, I think you said earlier. Um, And so when I came into high school, in my mind, he was Mr. Popular. I don't know if you felt you were Mr. Popular, but I I felt you were Mr. Popular, and I always wanted to be associated with you. And so um, that never happened in high school, uh, but uh, as it turns out, we both have come to know the Lord. and, And I'm just so glad that we're associated now in Christ. And so let 's welcome Mark as he brings the lord 's word to us a round of applause.
1: Thanks, well i 'm sure glad the stories from high school stopped there. <laughs> Thank you for that, Mark. Oh, so good to be back with you. I think it was i don 't know six months or so that I was uh, here last with you and Um, Always good to come back. Coming to PBC, whether it's Palo Alto or Cupertino, feels like coming home for me. uh, For 35 years, I pastored a church in Foster City that was planted by PBC uh, many years ago. And so, again, I feel right at home here, and it's so good to be with you today. If you have a Bible and you brought one, uh, please turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. In the summer of uh, of 1976, I was working at a Young Life camp for the summer uh, in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. And my mentor that summer was a fellow named Jay. And Jay was actually on the staff of Young Life. And I'll never forget one day, Jay took me out to some property that he owned uh, near the camp. He had a project that he was doing there. It was a little construction project where he was building a deck and he said, hey Mark, we have a day off. Let's go and uh, we'll spend the day together and we can work on this deck. And so uh, we packed the lunch. Off we went. Drove hour, two hours, something like that. And I remember thinking, oh boy, it's supposed to rain. You know, Rocky Mountains, summer, you get a lot of rain in the afternoons and and so we arrived at his property and had a trailer on it. And, uh, and sure enough, it, almost as soon as we arrived there, it began to pour, just crazy rain. And so we decided, uh, well, you know, let's eat our lunch uh, in the car here. And, and so we, we opened up our sack lunches and Jay prayed. And I'll never forget, as he was praying and thanking God for the food, he just rather matter-of-factly asked God to stop the rain. Now, I remember thinking to myself as a young Christian, well, that's, that's quite a thing to pray for, you know? That's, he's got a lot of guts to pray for that. Just boom, just clear the rain up, would you? And uh, I'll never forget that, um, that we said amen, And before I could eat my ham sandwich, there was a miraculous clearing of the sky. I mean, it just immediately stopped. And I just, I thought, holy cow, this is amazing. And I remember I looked over at Jay and the thing I remember most about it is he was like, well, what did you expect to happen, Mark? (laughs) Of course. Um, I mean, I'm thinking he's got a lot of guts to pray like that. And he's thinking, well, of course, Mark, what did you expect to happen? It reminds me of something that Carl Barth once said. He said, to clasp the hand in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. I guess that applies even to the disorder of untimely rain, right? And I've never forgotten that answer to prayer. I've never forgotten Jay's quiet confidence that God would respond to that very simple request. And isn't it true that sometimes we really don't expect God to answer our prayers? And one of the things that comforts me is that this was also true with the early church as we see here in Acts chapter 12. So here in Acts 12, the early church is facing a crisis, much greater than the one Jay and I faced that day. King Herod Agrippa was on the throne And by the way, he was the the nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the guy who murdered John the Baptist. His grandfather was Herod the Great, who slaughtered the innocents around the time of Jesus' birth. But Agrippa, this Herod, was actually popular with the Jews. Uh, He was like the consummate politician. And so for this reason, he began to strike out against the church. So let's pick it up in verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each, Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So the first thing that Herod did, we see here, is he had James beheaded. Now you remember that James was one of the original 12 apostles. James was the brother of John. Remember the two fishermen. And remember also that Jesus predicted that that both of them would suffer martyrdom. And here we see that James was the first to go. And this would have been a great blow to the church. But Herod didn't stop there. He arrested Peter. And he would have had Peter killed immediately, but it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread and executions were not allowed during religious holidays. So Herod waited until the holiday was over. And he put Peter in prison and we're told he assigned four squads of soldiers to guard him, that's 16 men. Two of them would have actually been chained to Peter and the others would guard the doors to the prison. So Herod is not taking any chances at all here on losing Peter. Now just try to sit back and imagine what a crisis this was for the early church. James is dead, Peter is in prison, and Herod is triumphing. That's how chapter 12 begins. That's what these early believers faced. But consider this, at the end of the chapter, Herod is dead, Peter is free, and the word of God is triumphing. So there will be a complete turnaround between verse four and verse 24. And the question I wanna ask is how did this happen? I mean, did the church, like, protest? Did they exert political pressure on Herod? Maybe they tried to get one of their more wealthy members to run for office. Uh, Did they stand by and do nothing? What did the church do? Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. I don't know if you're one of those folks that like to mark up your Bible, but if you do, you might want to just underline those words, but the church was earnestly praying for him. I believe the entire chapter hinges on those words, and here really what we see are two forces at war, each using their own weapons. First, there's Herod with the power of the sword. But then there's the church, stripped of all human power, doing the one thing they believed could make a difference. Praying. And and notice a few things about how they prayed. Notice they prayed specifically. It it says they prayed for him. Well, that was for Peter, of course. So they mobilized specifically to pray for Peter. We're not told what they asked God to do for Peter, but I have no doubt that they had the boldness to ask God for his release, for his protection. They also prayed continuously. Luke actually uses a verb tense here that indicates ongoing action. So as each day went by, bringing them closer to the execution, they kept storming heaven for Peter. I believe they prayed day and night And you know, there are times to keep praying, even when nothing seems to be happening. We're also told they prayed earnestly. It says the church was earnestly praying. Literally, this word kind of has a physical undertone to it and it means to stretch out. And so there's this sense that they were agonizing, wrestling even with God in prayer over this issue. Finally, It says they prayed corporately. It says the church was doing this. So they didn't just pray individually in their little prayer closets. They got together, they gathered together, and they prayed together. And God answered their prayers in a most unusual way. Let's pick it up and starting in verse six. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Notice here that God seems to wait till the very last minute to act on Peter's behalf. It is the night before Peter is supposed to be executed. He knows what has just happened to James, and now he knows it's his turn, but Did you see what Peter was doing in prison? He's sleeping so soundly that an angel can't wake him up. You have to see the humor in that. This is a really funny story. He's chained up to two guards, lying on the cold, dirty cell of a prison floor, of a floor of a prison cell. An angel appears, and, and a glorious light spreads throughout the prison, and Peter sleeps through the whole thing unbelievable I mean Paul and Silas sang in prison at least they stayed awake but Peter is so unconcerned he can't even keep his eyes open and God can do that for us can't he God can give us his peace in the midst of the greatest storm in the darkest hour he can give us a quiet confidence maybe that's the greatest answer to prayer of all God kept Peter in perfect peace in that cell. Well, finally, he does begin to wake up, and the angel tells him to get up, get dressed, and follow him. Peter throws on his clothes, and he begins to follow the angel. He thinks he's having a vision or a dream of some kind. He passes the first and the second guard. We don't know whether, like, they're awake or asleep, but either way, it's a miracle. They don't see him. And they come to this huge iron gate leading out of the prison. How are they going to get through that? All of a sudden, it swings open by itself. Finally, they're out on the street, and the angel, poof, disappears. Peter must have been like, oh, thanks. What do I do now? But he collects himself. He kind of puts two and two together. And he says, I get it. God just sent me that angel to deliver me from Herod. By the way, have you ever done that? Something happens, and it's not till it's all over that you reflect and you stand back and you look back and you kind of say, I think that was God. I think God was in that. I think I just had an encounter of some kind with God's power and might. And so Peter's left out on the street, though. Okay, what do I do next? And he immediately thinks of his fellow believers and he knows they're concerned for them. He wants to let them know that he's okay and what God has done for him, but where are they? Look at verse 12. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Now, you remember that Mary was the mother of John Mark, who would soon accompany Paul on his first missionary journey. It appears, perhaps, that she was a woman of some means. She had at least one servant, and her house was large, and so her church, or the early church, uh, found this to, to be an ideal place for them to meet. Remember, they didn't meet in buildings like this. They met in homes. And Peter instinctively knew that there would be at least one group of Christians there at Mary's house. And I'm sure there were a number of homes scattered throughout the city where believers had met, perhaps praying for Peter just like they were in Mary's home. But Peter goes to Mary's home and that's where he found his friends. Notice also that Luke reminds us again in verse 12 what they were doing. They were praying. And maybe it's good just to pause here for a moment it's so easy to forget that this is a very big part of what the church is to be about. Uh, We can get so caught up in the trappings of church, right? Of buildings and programs and budgets that we lose sight of the simplicity of what the church really is. The church is about people, it's about people learning to relate to God, learning to relate to one another, learning to be salt and light in the community. And in the early church, the way they did that was through these small groups of believers meeting in homes to pray for one another, to bear one another's burdens. We see here how they had gathered together that night to pray specifically for Peter. One of the sad commentaries On the church today is that if the same thing were to happen to Peter today, he might not have a place to go, unless it was Sunday morning. And if he went there, would he find people praying? But I'm not sure Peter was prepared for what would happen when he got to Mary's house. Let's pick up the story starting in verse 13. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James... Not the same James who was already beheaded, right? Another James. And the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. Now, again, I hope you can see the humor in this story. Peter arrives at Mary's house. Peter starts knocking at the door. He must be so eager to get in there and tell the fellow believers what God had done. Uh, This door didn't open for him, by the way. The believers are huddled together inside. A servant girl named Rhoda hears the knocking and she comes to the door. Back then, you didn't just open the door like we often do. You had the visitor identify himself first. So imagine Peter says, Rhoda, it's me, Peter. Open the door. I can just hear Rhoda just shriek with joy, Peter. Peter says, yeah, it's me, Peter. Now, Rhoda, open the door. But she's so excited, Rhoda is so thrilled, she runs back to the house to tell the others. Peter's still standing there at the door. Rhoda, open the door. Where'd you go? It's me, Peter. Meanwhile, Rhoda interrupts the prayer meeting and says, guess who's outside? It's Peter. He's been set free by an angel. They don't believe her. They think she's gone mad, and they get into a big argument. I imagine they're arguing about the theology of angels. (laughs) Meanwhile, Peter's outside, ready to pound the door down. This is awesome, because these people are just like us. Here they are. They've been praying for days with all their heart, with all their might, agonizing in prayer for Peter. Yet when the answer to their prayer is knocking at the door, they refuse to believe it's even possible. I'm so comforted by this. How often do I pray for something? But deep down, I really don't expect God to answer. And when he does, I can hardly believe it or I try to find some other explanation for it. It strikes me that sometimes the answer to our prayers are knocking at the door, but we're not listening. We're not even answering the door. We pray and we look and we watch, but... We don't really expect God to answer. And yet it comforts me also to know that that God still took their little sort of mustard seed of faith and used it to do great things, to do mighty things in their midst. And he'll do the same for us. It's also interesting to me that I would imagine there were some spiritual like heavyweights there at that night in Mary's home. I mean, imagine who might have been there, right? Wow, what a guest list. Amazing. But it's a servant girl, a servant girl named Rhoda, who has all the faith. Don't ever say about anyone, well, she could never teach me anything. I could never learn anything from her. As soon as you do that, you will most likely eat your words. Did you notice Rhoda's joy? It mentions it specifically in the text. Her joy Her joy came from her faith. Everyone else had questions. Rhoda has joy. Why did Rhoda have joy? Because she believed. Joy always results from believing. In fact, in Romans 15, verse 17, Paul prays that we would be filled with all joy and peace in believing. That's Rhoda. So finally, they let Peter in. And they must have been absolutely transfixed as they listened to Peter tell the whole story, reminding them to pass the news on to James and the rest of the brethren. No doubt, they were meeting elsewhere, praying for Peter as well. And then Peter leaves, and I think Peter probably felt the need to lay low for a while. And so the chapter closes with the death of Herod And then a brief report about the progress of the gospel. So skip down to verse 21, if you will. And look at the end of the chapter. Then Herod, or excuse me, on the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not praise, give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, And he was eaten by worms and died. But the Word of God continued to spread and flourish. So, what we see here as this chapter ends is that in spite of kings, in spite of swords, in spite of prisons, the Word of God continued to grow. Remember at the start of the chapter, remember what I said? James is dead. Peter is in prison. Herod is triumphing. Now, at the end of the chapter, Herod is dead. Peter is free. And the word of God is triumphing. And the key to it all is what? It's a praying church. Has anything changed? I want to step back from this just wonderful story and just take note of some of the things this teaches us about how God Works. So I want you to first of all notice the mystery of God's sovereignty. The mystery of God's sovereignty. Herod has an earthly rule, but God rules over all. He is our king, and as our king, we affirm that God has all authority and he can do whatever he pleases to do with us and with this world. And we delight in that because we believe God rules with justice and love. He's not a petty tyrant like Herod. But but notice the mystery of how he works. You can't hear this story without being baffled by God's ways. Why did God permit James to be executed, but then deliver Peter? Some have tried to explain it. Maybe Peter was more important than James, Or maybe the church didn't pray as hard for James as they did for Peter. Or maybe James was just the victim of of uncontrollable circumstances. But none of these explanations are adequate. It's futile to try to figure out all that God does. Why does this person die of cancer and the other person survive it? Why does God remove this person so swiftly when we need him or her so much. And we wrestle with God, don't we, over these things? It's like we want to take God to court and put him on trial. But the bottom line is, we cannot always explain God's ways. He does what he pleases. His ways are above our ways. And at times, all we can do is submit and surrender to his infinite wisdom. Now, I want you to notice something else. I also want you to notice, though, the certainty the certainty of God's triumph. Though we may not be able to understand all that he does, now we do know the end. We do know his purpose. We know that his purpose is good and we know that it will be fulfilled in history. I love my, my church history professor used to say that history is his story. It's his story. Uh, once in a while I'll be reading a novel I love to read novels, and I'll cheat. I'll read the last few pages just to find out how it ends. It's like I can't wait. In a way, we don't understand all that God is doing right now, but God has allowed us to peek at the end of the story, and we know how it ends, don't we? God has a purpose. God has a plan. Right now, we're in the middle of the novel, and the plot has thickened, and it's hard to see where it's all going But in the end, God will accomplish his purposes in your life and in this world. He's not out of control, his hands are not tied, he's not powerless to say. Though James is dead, he still has the power to deliver Peter and to judge Herod and cause the truth of the gospel to spread. Though life can never be completely understood in the process of living, we don't despair because the same power that delivered Peter from prison and judged Herod will one day deliver all those who trust in him. But here's the third thing, and this is the clincher. The mystery of God's sovereignty and the certainty of God's triumph don't keep the church from using its most powerful weapon. And that is prayer. And that's a temptation for us. The doctrine of God's sovereignty can revolutionize our lives. God is in perfect control, working out his purposes according to his foreordained plan. Nothing can prevent God from accomplishing what God has determined to do. I love that. But the temptation is to think God's method of accomplishing his ends is to act apart from us, right? And here we see that we are not to be rendered passive by the sovereignty of God. From the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God has given human beings what we call agency in accomplishing his purposes. It's hard to understand the interplay between God's plan and our prayers and our activity, but somehow he allows us to participate in the accomplishing of his purposes through prayer. See, prayer isn't about us getting God to cooperate with our plans, but vice versa. Think of it this way, if I throw out a boat hook from a boat and I catch hold of the shore and I pull, do I pull the shore to me? Or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer isn't pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. And that's what happens when we gather together to pray. We align ourselves with God. We express our needs to him. The world relies on prisons and personalities and the sword. The church relies on God through prayer. Whenever the church relies on anything else, we lose our power. When we rely on gifted personalities rather than prayer, we lose our power. When we rely on the ingenuity of our methods rather than prayer, we lose our power. When we rely on political clout rather than prayer, we lose our power. Samuel Chadwick said this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep saints, the saints, from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. And what's amazing, and what I love about this story, is that even doubting prayer Uh, such as the believers in Mary's house had, is enough to overcome the power of the sword. The point of the story isn't to pray better or pray more. The point is just to pray. And God uses our doubting, fumbling, stumbling prayers to accomplish great things. God simply wants us to ask. Uh, Jesus had to ask. Did you know that? In Psalm 2, verse 8, God the father says to his own son, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance. (laughs) Even Jesus had to ask. If Jesus had to ask, I do too. Think about this, how it relates to the people in your life who don't yet know Jesus. And there's a lot of different strategies out there about how to reach our lost friends. Have you considered simply asking God? to bring them to himself. Uh, You've probably heard of D.L. Moody, the uh, the one-time shoe salesman who became one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century. Did you know that Moody's entire evangelistic strategy was prayer? That's it. Now listen to this. Moody carried a list of a 100 names of lost friends in his pocket every single day of his adult life. He prayed for every single one by name. Now get this, when Moody died at age 62, 96 of those people had come to faith in Christ. That's a 96% success rate. I'll take that. Here's something even more amazing. At Moody's funeral, the four remaining names on that list were so moved by the memorial service that they came to faith as well. God just says, ask me, ask me, ask me. How about this? In 2010, a group of eight people from two churches felt called to the Detroit Boulevard neighborhood of Sacramento. It's one of the most notorious crime-ridden neighborhoods in Sacramento. But this group decided to just walk through the neighborhood and they were gonna pray over every single home They were gonna pray for the presence of Christ over violence, over addiction, over oppression. One of the eight was a former Sacramento police officer and he said every time we prayed over those houses we felt the weight of oppression becoming lighter. A woman from one of the houses confronted them when she discovered they were praying for the community, she asked for healing and God answered their prayer. Uh, The group then moved into the neighborhood and started a little church. A couple of years later, the Sacramento Bee reported there were no homicides, no robberies or sex crimes, and only one assault in Detroit Boulevard between 2013 and 2014. How about that? Detroit Boulevard was transformed by a little group of people who asked. They just asked. Ask me, ask me. I spent 35 years pastoring the same church and we saw God do some wonderful things and I don't really have very many regrets to be honest but if I were to do it over again, the one thing I can tell you that I would do better would be to lead our people in prayer. More like the early church, specifically, continuously, earnestly and corporately. God's chosen weapon is prayer. The power of prayer, even doubting, halting, fumbling prayer is mightier than all the Herods in your life and mightier than hell itself. Satan laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you right now and we are so grateful that you give us access into your presence that we can walk right through the torn veil into the Holy of Holies and simply ask. And this morning we ask that you would awaken us once again to the necessity and to the power and to the privilege of prayer. Forgive us for how often we forget that. Forgive us for how often we rely on our own methods, our own power, our own brains, instead of simply relying on you in prayer. Thank you for this gift. Lord, teach us to pray. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for being here today. Let's uh, close with a benediction that comes out of the New Testament. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all forever and ever. Amen.